Now, usually when people try to figure out what life is all about, they try and put it in a a little pithy saying, uh, a simple and clear-cut answer, something that they can print on a poster that you can hang in your bedroom or on your wall, wherever it may be. But Solomon has, up to this point, never seemed to have got the final answer. The more he looks into things, the more he struggles to make sense of what this world is all about. And I want to add the phrase, under the sun. You can see this same frustration that Solomon had uh, when Samuel Johnson finally finished his famous dictionary. By the time that he finished his lexical uh, masterpiece, Dr Johnson had a definition for nearly every word in the English language. Yet not for a moment did he think that he knew all the answers. This is what he wrote in his preface. I saw that one inquiry only gave occasion to another. That book referred to another book. That to search was not always to find, and to find was not always to be informed. And thus, to pursue perfection was to chase the sun. And so it is for Solomon. Looking for the meaning of life was for Solomon like chasing the sun. But if we think about that, it helps us to understand the book of Ecclesiastes because this book is not the kind of book that you keep reading until you reach the end and get an answer, like a mystery book, for instance. Ecclesiastes isn't like that. Ecclesiastes is a book in which we keep struggling with the problems of life and as we struggle with those problems, what we do is we learn to trust God with the questions even when we don't have all the answers. But really, that's what the Christian life is all about anyway, isn't it? The Christian life is not about what we get at the end, even though what we do get at the end is an inheritance, is our time with the Lord, in eternity with uh, the joy of being with him. That is the end. But that's not what Christian life is all about, because Christian life is what we become along the way. Discipleship, Christian discipleship is a journey. It's not a destination, right? Oh, it's turned on. I thought I turned it on. No, it is turned on. Did no one hear me? (laughs) I've got a good loud voice. I'll keep going and let let the guys work it out. It is on though. all plugged in. And so that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. It's not what we get at the end, it's what we learn along the way. It's, a, it's, it's not the destination that we as Christians are, uh, are here for, to do, it's the journey along the way. And this is what Ecclesiastes is for, the, for Solomon. As he goes through his life, as he seeks to find answers... This is what it's all about for him. So turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. The last time we were together, we saw Solomon still struggling with many of the same questions that he started with. If you remember back into chapter 8, the advice he gave in verse 15 of chapter 8 was was good (laughs) advice as far as it went. I'll read it for you. So I commend pleasure 
For there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry, and this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. That was Solomon's conclusion. But at the end of chapter 8, you can still see the evidence of a frustrated philosopher. And I saw every work of God and I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. This is where we finished last time, in this verse where Solomon saw all of God's work, but he fails to understand it. No matter how wise we are, no matter how much we laboriously seek to understand every word of God, we still fail to comprehend his holy ways. And this is where we can pick up scriptures like Isaiah 55 verse 9. So as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts, saith the Lord. What has Solomon learned so far? Well, only that life is a weary business. He's also discovered that it's impossible to know for certain what God is doing in the world. And I want to tell you, if anyone comes to you and tries to tell you any different, if someone claims to, to you that they have unlocked the secret of God's plans, he is fooling himself. And that's where Solomon left us last time. And now we turn to chapter 9. And there have been many things that Solomon has failed to understand, but he never has given up his faith that God is in charge. In fact, in the opening verses of chapter 9, we see him affirm his belief in the sovereignty of God. And then during the rest of the chapter, which we won't all do today, he will wrestle with some of the doctrinal uh, practical implications of God's sovereignty. But look at chapter 9 verse 1. For I have taken all this to my heart, all this, everything that he's talked about so far, everything in the first eight chapters, he's taken it all to his heart. And this is what he has come up with. I have taken all this to my heart and explain it that righteous men, wise men and their deeds are in the hands of God. That's his conclusion so far. And with these words, Solomon is leaving God's people in God's hands. What is the implication of this? What's the implication of God, of we being in God's hands? One of the implications is that God decides for each of us just what will be throughout our lives. God will decide in his sovereignty what we will be doing. And so for a faithful believer in Jesus Christ, for a person who has accepted him as their saviour, like Peter shared with us around the communion table, as far as a faithful believer in Christ, the image of being in the hand of God is a comfort. It should be a comfort to you. It's an assurance for each born-again believer, that you are in the hands of God. But Solomon is writing before the cross. We need to understand that. Solomon is writing from a view of being under the sun, without God. 
Twice in these verses, Pete read for us, Solomon uses that phrase over again. He's been using it over and over again in the first eight chapters. And so what Solomon is doing is writing about his struggle to understand, God, what are you doing in this world? And his uncertainty comes out very clearly in the second half of that verse that I read in in verse 1. I'll read the whole verse. For I have taken all this to my heart and explain it that righteous men, wise men and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. Another version says whether, whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. Solomon's never lost his grip on the sovereignty of God, so he knows our fate is in God's hands. What he doesn't know is whether God's hand is for us or against us, whether he is love or hate. The scripture says in Psalm 48.10 that God's hand is filled with righteousness. In Psalm 95.7 it says that we are sheep of his hand. John 10.28, no one can ever be snatched out of his hand. Yet the scriptures also say in Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Therefore, it's not enough to know whether we're in God's hands. The reality is everyone is in God's hands. That's the reality, everyone The question you should be asking is whether God's hand is for you or against you. Whether there is love or hate awaiting you. Is he your friend or is he your foe? This is what Solomon is trying to work out. I don't know what's waiting for you, whether it's hate or whether it's love. And that's our question this morning. And Solomon struggles with this question. Is God for me or is he against me? Is he against me or for me? And he discovers, as as we will read on, that it's impossible to answer that question simply looking at people's circumstances. It's not possible to know whether he's for us or against us by what people do or their circumstances they're in. You see, many people assume that if if there is a God, he's going to reward his followers with earthly prosperity. And so if we want to know whether God is for someone or against someone, then just have a look at where they are. Count their blessings and and see how far down they are and you'll know whether God's for you or against you. But that's not how God operates. He doesn't operate like that at all. And this is what we'll read in verse 2 and 3. Solomon says, It is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, And for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and for one who does not offer sacrifice, as the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. And insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. And then seems to be an afterthought. He says, afterwards they go to the dead. 
Solomon is struggling with the fact that it's the same for all. He's struggling to understand why the righteous aren't blessed and why the wicked aren't cursed. And if we're honest with ourselves, if you deep, reach deep down into your heart, I think we struggle with this as well. But Solomon, in his wisdom from God, lets us know that one reason it's hard to tell whether God is for us or against us is because the same thing happens to everybody. In verses 2 and 3, some people honour God, but others don't. Yet strangely, both groups suffer the same fate. If there are storms, the righteous get flooded out with the wicked, don't they? If there's an earthquake, both of their homes fall down. If there's a depression, both go broke. Thinking more optimistically, when times are good, Matthew 5.45 says, God sends rain on the just and the unjust. Therefore, it's impossible to tell who has and who does not have God's eternal favour just by their circumstances, which is what Solomon is struggling with. It's the same for all. Afterwards, they just go to the dead. This must have frustrated Solomon no end. In fact, he began verse 3 by saying that one fate for all men, it's an evil thing. It's evil to even contemplate that there's one fate for all men. This is as frustrating as anything we've seen in Ecclesiastes so far. It seems so futile. If we all go to the dead, does anything really matter? What's the point of it all? Now Solomon ended chapter 8 last time we were together by denying that anyone can understand the work that God does in the world. Then for a moment, at the beginning of chapter 9, he gave us the hope that our lives are in the hands of a sovereign God. But straight away he struggled and he he saw it's impossible for us to know whether God is for us or against us. And that the same fate awaits all of us. And after that we just go to the dead. How frustrating. How utterly futile is life under the sun. Vanity of all vanities, says the preacher. Just before I go to verse 4, I want to just go on a sideline. I want to ask, do you realise that death was never meant to be a part of God's creation? I wonder if you've ever understood that, that death was never meant to be a part of his creation. We were created by a living God, by a living people, to be a living people who will live for him forever. That was God's desire, God's plan. And the reason that we do die is because of sin. Death is actually the wages of our rebellion and sin against God. Romans 6.23 That's why death came into the world through sin. That's why we have what Peter's explained to us around the communion table, which I'll explain a little bit later on. But that's what Solomon's saying in verse 3. He says, The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. And so under the sun, the only way to get rid of death is to get rid of sin. And that's why Jesus Christ came and died for our sins so that we may live. 
So if you sit here this morning and you believe in Jesus Christ as your Saviour from sin, He will offer you eternal and abundant life. It's a gift of God's grace, not something that you have earned. Just wanted us to understand that when he says and gets frustrated about the fact we all just go to dead, I thought that was not the norm. That's not how it should have been, but sin came in. And we have to deal with sin, and we'll see that a bit later on. But going back to verse 4, what Solomon has now done is confronted us with our own mortality. He is saying, memento mori. You have no idea what that means, and I didn't know until I looked it up. It's a Latin phrase. Remember that you must die. It's a great phrase. Memento mori. Remember, you must die. But you're not dead yet. At least some people are moving in the congregation. You're not dead yet, and therefore... There is a reason for hope. This is the same hope that those here this morning that are not born-again believers have. If you're not a born-again believer this morning, you've never accepted Christ's payment for your sin on the cross, then this is your hope, the fact that you're still alive. And Solomon saw that and he says in verse 4, For whoever is joined with all the living... There is a hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. We don't understand that proverb or that uh, Arabic proverb very well today. A live dog is better than a dead lion because today pets are pampered so much that they get treated, dogs get treated better than humans sometimes. And so it loses its sting when we say a dog is better than a dead lion. The fact is a, dog, a live dog is probably better than some humans uh, off these days. But the whole idea in those days that the dogs were diseased. They were mongrels. They ran in packs through the city streets and people feared these dogs. They were horrible, horrible animals. Nevertheless, Solomon says that a live mongrel dog with rabies is better than the regal king of the jungle who happens to be dead. Can you guess why? A mongrel dog is better than the king of the jungle who's dead? Well, it's easy, isn't it? Because the king of the jungle, he's dead. There's no hope for him. The simple point is that living is better than dying. And why do we say that? Because this gives us time to prepare for death and therefore eternity. While you're alive is the only time you can prepare for eternity. You cannot prepare for eternity once you're dead. If you sit here this morning unsaved, then this is your hope. You're still alive. There's no second chance once you die. You see, the Bible goes against all popular belief, all other religions, and says there is no purgatory. There is no reincarnation. In fact, Hebrews 9.27 says this, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. No second chances when you die. 
It's appointed for you to die once, then judgment. And so Solomon is saying, as long as there is life under the sun, as long as you're alive, alive, at least there's a hope. There's the presence of hope. Being alive is better than being dead if you're under the sun. If you're without God, which again the, the term under the sun has been throughout this book. Then look at Solomon's next statement, starting at verse 5. He says, For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate and their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. Solomon's mentioning some of the problems with death under the sun. Death brings ignorance. The dead know nothing, at least nothing about what's happening on earth. The end of verse 6 makes it clear that Solomon is not denying the afterlife, but is describing the total permanent end that death brings to an earthly existence. As soon as we die... We forever forfeit what it says in 9.6, our share in all that is done under the sun. And death brings permanent loss, for the dead do not gain any earthly reward, as he says. Death also brings oblivion. No one remembers the dead when they're gone. He goes on to say even the earthly emotions that make us feel the most alive, feelings like love and hatred and envy that Solomon mentions in verse 6, will all disappear when you die. However difficult life may be, at least it's better than the alternative. Where there's life, there's hope. A live dog is better than a dead lion. But to get the full picture of death, we need to look beyond this chapter. We need to look beyond the book of Ecclesiastes. To get the full picture of death, we can go to the end of this book where the scriptures say that this life is not the only life there is. Even Ecclesiastes tells us about life under the sun. It raises the possibility of some kind of life in some other place. When we get to chapter 12, a few chapters away, we're going to discover that there is life above. In verse 7 he says, where the Spirit returns to God who gave it. In verse 14, when God will bring every deed into judgment, there's another life to come or another part of life to come. But let's look beyond the book of Ecclesiastes to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the promise of the resurrection. You see, Ecclesiastes does not have all the answers, nor does it claim to ever have all the answers. Remember, this is not the kind of book that we keep reading until we get the answer. It's the kind of book that helps us to know how to serve God when we don't have all the answers. That's what Ecclesiastes is doing for us, helping us to serve God when you don't have all the answers. But Ecclesiastes is also part of a larger book, which we have the privilege of having. And this larger book gives us fuller answers to many of the same questions that Solomon is asking in the book of Ecclesiastes. Therefore, we also need to read Ecclesiastes in the context of the whole Bible. 
What does the rest of the Bible teach us about the life to come? Well, it teaches us that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has gone ahead of us into glory. It teaches us that Jesus gave his life for our sins by dying on the cross. It teaches us that he was buried in the ground and he was as dead as dead could be. The Bible teaches us on the third day he rose to immortality. He rose to bring eternal life out of a deadly grave. And as I said before, this was so our sins could be paid for. And now the promise of God to every believer in Christ is that we too shall live. This means that our lives will not end in mindless oblivion. We will never suffer endless loss. On the contrary, death will be our passage to glory. Revelation 14.13 says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. We'll rest from our labours. We'll enter the presence of God and we'll know the fullness of joy. Our bodies will rise never to die again. By the mercy of God will we we be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. And this is just the beginning because... Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 2, No eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. What hope these promises bring to life, what confidence they give to the day of death. But there's a big question I must must ask each one of you. Will you die under the sun without God? Or will you die as a Christian? That's the question. We've seen Solomon struggle with what happens to people under the sun. Without God, they have one faith. And only you can answer that this morning. You can sit here in, in your seats and the fact is, as uh, Solomon has already said, I can't tell whether you're a Christian or not by looking at you, or that whether you're uh, prosperity or whether you're not. That's got nothing to do with whether you're a Christian or not. It's between you and God. But if you're wise, then you will get ready to die now. I know that sounds strange. But we all need to get ready to die by asking Jesus Christ to forgive our sins which we all have. We were all, every person, born a sinner. And we must prepare to die by asking Jesus Christ to forgive those sins by trusting him to raise our dead bodies to eternal life. And then when we come to the last of our days, we'll be ready to die with the full confidence that we have in Christ being in the hand of God. What are you living for this morning? That's Solomon's question. What are you dying for? Who are you dying for? What is the purpose of your existence? Is God for you or is he against you? I would urge every one of us individually to come to to, to answer that this morning. Why are you here? What is it all about? 
Does life have any purpose at all? And I'm here to tell you, if your life has any purpose at all now, it must be found in what happens now while you're still alive. Because when you're dead, it's too late. Today is a day of salvation. Because who knows what's going to happen tomorrow. As I close this morning, I need to say that some people expect to have all the answers. And when they fail to find them, then they get angry with God about what's happening or maybe not happening in their lives. I wonder if that's you this morning. You expect to have all the answers, and, but it doesn't quite work out. Solomon's been struggling with that for nine chapters. And it's come to the point where it's much, much wiser for us to humbly admit that we are finite beings with fallen minds, very finite minds, and therefore we're incapable of understanding everything that happens in this world. Francis Bacon was right when he warned us not to draw down or submit the mysteries of God to our reason. Instead, we should lift our hearts to praise God, as Paul did in his wonderful confession in the great mysteries of the mind of Christ. Romans 11, 33 and 34. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counsellor? Rather than getting frustrated with all the things that we don't know about the world or don't understand about the the ways of God, Solomon is inviting us to rest content with our own limitations and to worship God for his superior wisdom and knowledge. Isaac Watts, at the end of one of his many hymns, wrote this, Where reason fails with all her powers... Their faith prevails and love adores. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father, we want to thank you for the the joy of reading your word. Thank you for the context of the whole scriptures. We thank you, Lord, that you commissioned Solomon to struggle with life under the sun. We thank you, Father, that we can take the whole counsel of God We have the privilege of being born after the cross, the privilege of having the New Testament in our hands, the privilege of knowing the future to a certain degree. But Lord, sometimes we think we should know all the answers before we do anything about it. Lord, I pray for those here this morning who do not know you, those who in their heart know that they have never accepted Christ as their Saviour. Lord, I pray for them specifically today and ask, Lord, that they would understand that their hope is the fact that they're still alive. There is no second chance after death. There's appointed for us to die once and then the judgment. 
Lord, I pray that your spirit may move amongst us to the point of drawing those people to yourself. Drop the scales from their eyes that they may see what Solomon has been, has been saying is so true without God. Life is futile. Life is useless without the Creator. And so I pray, Father, that you would do that through your Spirit and ask, Father, that uh, you would leave no one comfortable in the wrong decision this morning. And I ask it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.